Well, I don't know what it's like uh, for you when you go to Costco, but um, for me, if I want to do pastoral work, I go to I can go to Costco. You know, I just run into so many people, you know, there and just chatting and all that. And I, I don't really get an opportunity to do it all that often because Christina doesn't really want to let me uh, be the one that goes to Costco because I'm. I'm usually hungry, and when you go to Costco hungry, it's just a recipe for disaster. So I usually don't get a chance to go, but when I do, you know, it's just like, man, all these people, you know, hey, how's it going? And Paul the Apostle was such a relational man. He knew so many people in the body of Christ. And as I've been saying to you, he'd never been to Rome as a Christian. He'd never seen the church in Rome with his own eyes. However, he had met a lot of the Christians that were currently in the church in Rome. People in Rome could travel freely throughout the world. And Paul, as he spent time in Ephesus or in Corinth or in Macedonia, he had met a lot of believers who eventually had found their way to the city of Rome and the Roman church. And Paul knew about these people. He knew that they were there. He remembered them. And a lot of Romans chapter 16 is actually Paul greeting these believers that he so loved and that he so cared for. And so this chapter is really helpful to us in a lot of ways. Some of you like the book of Acts, and part of the reason you like the book of Acts is because you're getting a glimpse into what it was like in the early church. And Romans chapter 16 is kind of like that. We're going to see a lot of different humans, a lot of different characters, and some of their attributes that help us understand the value system and the life of uh, the early church. We're going to see some people who labored with Paul. We're going to see others that he simply greeted, and we're going to see some words of warning and, and also praise that he wanted to give to the Roman church before he ended uh, this epistle, before he ended uh, this uh, letter. So some great things for us to learn uh, from this little uh, section uh, today. Okay, so we start out in verse 1, and we see one of the workers that Paul is going to uh, mention. And really the first 15 or so verses, we're going to have a lot of different people that Paul lists. I'm going to talk about some of them, because some of these people we know things about from other places in Scripture. And then some of the people we really don't know anything. And if you read various scholars uh, and, and all of that, you'll see that they guess a lot as to who these people are and maybe some of it connected to the meanings of their names, some of it connected to uh, extra-biblical or outside-of-the-Bible literature from around that same time period that mentions some of these people. Some of them from are mentioned in archaeology, so they'll kind of put it all together and say, maybe this guy is that. I'll probably avoid most of that today and just tell you mostly about the people that we know from other places uh, in Scripture. The first person that Paul mentions is found in verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So the first person that he mentions is this woman, Phoebe, and he's actually not greeting her. He's actually just telling the Roman church to receive her. Probably what's happening here is that somebody had to deliver this letter, and more than likely, it was Phoebe who Paul had sent from Centre, which was just outside of Corinth, where Paul was currently at as he wrote this letter. And so he sends Phoebe on her way to Rome, 
And he now tells the church in Rome to receive her. You know, in those days when you were doing uh, a lot of different things, secular work, but also church work, uh, you would need letters of commendation to sort of validate who you claim to be when you got to that place. You couldn't just say, like, look it up online, or here's some YouTube videos about different Bible studies I've taught, you know, things like that. So what Paul is doing is he is giving her, and what Christians would do during that time is that they would write letters of commendation. So if you were a minister, you'd get letters from well-known ministers, and you'd carry those with you so that when you went to a new town, you'd be able to say, you know, I was a pastor in the previous town I was in. Here's some letters from some Christian leaders that you might know of. And as they read them, they'd say, okay, cool. You're legit. You're a pastor. How cool is it, though, that for Phoebe, this woman, her letter of commendation is actually the book of Romans. How tight is that? You know, she's just able to say like, oh, you want to know like whether I'm a legit minister, you know, and all that and and can serve the Lord. She says, well, have you read the last chapter of the greatest letter that has ever been written in the history of mankind? I'm in there, you know, so that's that's what Paul is doing uh, for this uh, woman. And he tells the church there, what I want you to do is to welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints. It's a great thing for us to consider and for the Roman church to consider. What does it look like to really be welcoming in a Christian way, in a way that is fitting in uh, Christ Jesus? Now, I should mention to you in verse 1 that Paul uses a word to describe her. He calls her a servant of the church at Centra. It sounds like a very official, almost, position that this woman holds. And that word, servant, is actually the identical word that is translated in other places, deacon. Uh, which is merely not a, uh, a, a is merely a spiritual person who takes care of some of the practical matters in the body of Christ. So you'd have pastors and leaders like that in the church who would take care of the spiritual matters, spiritual men taking care of spiritual matters. But sometimes you'd have deacons who were spiritual people, of course, they loved the Lord, but taking care of the physical matters, you know, managing the books and things like that. And it's possible that Phoebe was actually considered a deacon uh, in the early church uh, era. Although at that time, it probably wasn't yet this real official thing like you're thinking of it, you know, the names of the deacons on the wall of the church or something like that. It was just still in development. But either way, Paul refers to her as a servant of the body of Christ. So she was used greatly by the Lord. Now, in verse 3, Paul gets to his greetings, and the first people that he mentions is a married couple who actually meant a lot to him in his life and ministry. They were now in Rome, but he says, greet, verse 3, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks Uh, as well. Now, Prisca and Aquila in other places in the Bible are referred to as Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla or Prisca is the female, and then Aquila is the husband, the male. And these two uh, went back many years with Paul in his ministry. The first place that he met them was actually in the city of Corinth before the writing of this letter. And in Corinth, when Paul arrived, he arrived there alone. How many of you have felt the gravity of aloneness at times in your life. And Paul was alone when he got to Corinth. And as he was there, he looked around for people that he could connect with. None of his ministry companions are there, but he found two 
fellow Jews, Priscilla and Aquila, that he could connect with. They were there in Corinth because uh, the Roman emperor at the time had given an edict that all of the Jews had to depart from Rome. And so they had fled from Rome, gone to Corinth, and there they connected with Paul. Now, if you were a Jew at that time, you would have learned beyond your intellectual trade, you would have learned a, a, a trade with your own hands. And so Paul, with Priscilla and Aquila also, had all learned the trade of actually making tents. Okay, and This was something that was maybe more valuable than it would be in our modern era. And so they got together in Corinth and they began a tent-making business for a, almost a couple of years together. So they got very close together. And these two came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and became co-laborers in the gospel with Paul. Eventually, Paul left Corinth. And went down to Ephesus. And when he got there, he didn't stay very long, but departed. But Priscilla and Aquila went with him to Ephesus, and they stayed. And there's a famous story at the end of Acts chapter 18 that talks about a young man who was an incredible preacher whose name was Apollos. And he spoke with great fervency and eloquency, but he did not know about Jesus. So all he was doing was preaching the Old Testament. And talking about that. And so Priscilla and Aquila heard him speak and they thought, man, this guy's impressive. But after the message, they pulled him aside and it says they explained together, man and woman, they explained the word of God to Apollos more accurately. And they shared with him the gospel message. He gave his life to Christ and he became a weapon uh, for gospel ministry and eventually moved to himself to Corinth. But that's Priscilla and Aquila. And they stayed in Ephesus uh, when Paul returned there. And eventually, apparently, as we're learning here in this letter, moved back to Rome where Paul is writing them and greeting them and thanking them for their work uh, in the Lord. But this couple is an encouragement to any person who is married who with their spouse wants to serve Jesus. Because what you have is this married couple, and that value system is, man, we want to minister to other people. We want to care for other people. We learn in verse 5, Paul says, greet also the church in their house. So Priscilla and Aquila always had believers over in their home. I believe that this is one of the most effective ways to do ministry in our modern world, in our modern era. There are so many people walking around in our culture and society who need a redefinition of what a home looks like. They need a redefinition of what marriage looks like. One of the reasons that so many people in my generation and the generation below me are cohabitating before marriage is because they have believed in, in the lie and they've come under a disillusionment about marriage. And Priscilla and Aquila, as they brought these people into their home, they were helping them see a gospel-saturated marriage. They were helping them see the healthy, real deal. And it's, it's a great way to expedite discipleship in a person's life. And so this married couple, they loved serving Jesus Christ together. So they had the church, you know, coming over, meeting in their house. Paul goes on in verse 5, the end of verse 5, to say, and, and don't worry, I don't have as many comments about every person in this list. There's 26 of them. But we know a lot about Priscilla and Aquila, so I wanted to mention them to you. But in verse 5, at the end of it, he says, Greet my beloved uh, Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. We don't know much else about this man, Epinetus, but we do know that when Paul went on his third missionary journey up into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he remembered the first man that came to Jesus. 
He remembered that first convert. I think that helps us understand how Paul never lost the thrill of someone coming to Christ. Have you lost that thrill? We should never lose that thrill. That's a beautiful thing. I was able to pray with a young man this morning who received Christ as a Savior. And it's like that, that thrill should be there within our hearts. But also, I think that Paul understood how strategic the first Christian in a region or place would be. It was kind of like the crack in the dam, so to speak. You know, the pulling out of that first brick that would cause everything to crumble, or the first tip of the domino. That's what was in Paul's mind about Epinatus. You know, there was a great work that happened there, and it started when Epinatus gave his life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you think about your own life. You might be the only person in your family who knows Jesus. You might be the only person in your workplace who knows Christ. You might be the only person amongst your friends who knows the Lord, but you might not be the last. You might be the person that Jesus is tipping that domino, and he wants it to begin to start with you. Paul remembered that about this man, Epinatus. Then he goes on in verse 6, and he says, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. We, We don't know really much about Mary, but uh, suffice it to say, she wasn't one of the Marys in the gospel record or account. Too much time uh, has passed, more than likely, and this is a totally different place as we're dealing uh, with Rome, although she was more than likely of Jewish descent because of her name. Uh, It indicates that. And then you have, uh, in verse 7, another, what I believe is a married couple. Uh, He says, greet Andronicus and Junia, And here's what he says about them. He says, my kinsmen, so they were more than likely Jewish, and my fellow prisoners. So perhaps at one time they were actually physically locked up with Paul. He says, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So Paul is sort of looking back and he says, you know, this married couple, they've known Jesus longer than I've known Jesus. They've they've been Christians longer than I've been Christians. He says, you know, they're my kinsmen. They were my fellow prisoners. But I love the little phrase there in verse 7. He says, they are well known to the apostles. That could mean that they were well known to the uh, apostolic group, you know, Peter, James, John, men like that. But it could also mean that they were well known to missionary types in the early church. Either way, that's a good crew of people to be well known by, wouldn't you say? And here you have this married couple who is known well by a great group of people. It begs the question, perhaps, in our own lives, who knows me? Who am I well known by? Not that Andronicus and Junia were doing anything in order to be known by the apostles, but their manner of life was the kind of life that would put them on the apostles' radar, so to speak. And so we would want to live the kind of life that they live, to be known by those who are spiritual and godly and biblical. He goes on in verse 8, and he says, Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. So a lot of names there. You know, maybe you're pregnant right now and you're trying to figure out what to name your kid. There's some great names here. But one thing I'd point out is at the end of verse 10, he talks about the, the family or the household of Aristobulus. 
So people living in Aristobulus' household or family. And then he talks in verse 11 about uh, his kinsman Herodian. And it's very possible, if not probable, that both of these people, Aristobulus and uh, Herodian, or Herodion, that they were both related to and, uh, King Herod, or King Herod the Great. And it's very possible that both of them were in the aristocratic upper echelon of Roman society and culture. And so it's interesting, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but you're seeing different segments of the church. And many of the names in this portion of Romans, this list of greetings, many of these names are actually the names that were given to common slaves. But here on the other end of the spectrum, you have men like Aristobulus and Herodion who were uh, aristocrats and sort of the higher-ups in uh, Roman culture. It is interesting to me, though, at the end of verse 11, he talks about grieving those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. What that probably means is that you had the household of a man named Narcissus, and in a household you'd have, of course, you know, a wife, uh, children, but in a Roman household, you'd have like a staff and, you know, different workers, you know, people like that. So you could be part, not even of the family of Narcissus, but part of his household. And what Paul is saying here is that, look, there are some people in Narcissus's home and household who they are Christians. They belong to the Lord. So those who do greet them. In Christ. And that might stand out to some of us because what you might be having here is the case of a family or a household where some of them know Christ and others do not. And you might be here today and you understand that in a very real way in your practical experience. I'm sure many, if not all of us, can relate to that in a broader family scale. You know, different people in our extended family who don't yet know Christ and have perhaps even vehemently or loudly rejected Christ. But possibly, many of us understand even in a closer way than that, perhaps a spouse or a child who has not yet received Jesus Christ as as their Lord and Savior, a parent who has not yet received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And my encouragement to you is keep on going. Keep on serving the Lord. You might even at times in that marriage feel that unequal yoke, but as you serve Jesus, as you love the Lord, as you stay faithful, as you keep the faith, you are being salt and light even inside the walls of your own home. And so Paul here greets this household that apparently was spiritually divided. Then in verse 12, he goes on and he says, Greet those workers in the Lord Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, these are female names, and some have suggested that they might be sisters, and some have even suggested that they might be twins, and that their parents got cute by calling them Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, that's, we don't know much about them, though. They were workers in the Lord, however. Uh, he says then of a, another woman named Perses, he says, Greet the beloved Perses who has worked hard in the Lord. So again, another woman who is working hard for the kingdom of God. Now in verse 13, he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. 
Now, this is an interesting little title that he gives to this guy named Rufus. And I realize that, that many people have named their dogs Rufus over the years. Poor guy, that's not really fair to him. He was a legitimate good brother. He was chosen in the Lord, Paul says. That's his description of this man. Now, obviously, every single Christian in the Roman church could say, we are chosen in the Lord. In fact, after reading the book of Romans... If they were believers, they would say, we've been chosen by the Lord. We celebrate that. So what is Paul doing when he gives a special designation to this man and says, he is chosen in the Lord? It seems like he wants to highlight this man for some type of uh, reason. I believe that this man had a very special father. Uh, It tells us in the gospel accounts, in the book of Mark especially, that when Jesus was on his way to be crucified. He was carrying his cross beam. And it would have been a very heavy piece of wood that Jesus was carrying. And he came to a point because of the beatings and the physical exhaustion of praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that he couldn't carry his cross beam any further. His body was already that weakened. And so the Roman guard or the Roman soldiers, they were able to compel everyday citizens to carry burdens for them for a specific period or amount of time. And they saw a man whose name was Simon. He'd come from Africa, from Cyrene, on a pilgrimage, and they compelled him to carry Jesus's crossbeam. But when Mark gives a record of that in his gospel, he says, Simon of Cyrene, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, when you read the gospels, you have no idea. Who's Alexander? Who's Rufus? Why are they being mentioned? It's very possible that Mark had in mind the Roman church when he wrote his gospel, perhaps even on behalf of Peter, and that when he's writing it, Peter, as he's talking to Mark or as Mark has done his research, he's thinking about the Roman church, including Rufus, who was there inside of that church, and so honoring him for the identity of his father who had carried the crossbeam of Christ. So that's a... That's a uh, you know, and uh, guess that that's who he is, but there's some evidence uh, to back it up. But the interesting thing to me is that he says of him, he says, and also his mother, verse 13, who has been a mother to me as well. You know, I think sometimes we think of Paul the Apostle like this very sterile, intellectually uh, minded kind of man who would have been low relational, but high intellectual. Almost the kind of this guy that when they took him and would throw him into prison, he would just say like, well, it's fine, because all I want to do is read books and write things. So a prison is great for that. I just get to be here and study and all of that. But Paul looked at this woman, who is not his biological mother, but Rufus's mother, and he said, she behaved like a mother to me. And apparently he had this thing in his heart where he knew he needed that. He knew he needed to receive that kind of ministry uh, from this woman. I I believe that this is a vital and beautiful part of serving Jesus, especially for women as they age in Christ, to be able to be mothers to the next uh, generation. And of course, you have to be invited into it uh, for someone to want you to mother them in Christ. But when you are, you need to take that opportunity 
It's such a blessing for those who are growing in their faith. And Paul looked at that, and there was just something about this woman. She'd been a comfort to him, a, a mother to him. I don't know if she'd made him cookies at some point, but uh, she, she had been a blessing uh, in his life. We need this as well. Now, in verse 14, he greets this cluster of men, maybe young men, uh, kind of all living together uh, and uh, working and serving in the church there in Rome. But he says, greet uh, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. So in my mind, at least, I see this big apartment complex with all these guys, you know, living together, and they're not spending their time playing video games all day long, but they're studying the Word of God, they're serving Jesus. He says in verse 15, greet (laughs) Philologus, Julia, Nurus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints, uh, who are with them. Now, Philologus and Ju- Julia are potentially another married couple uh, that Paul is greeting. And it's possible that that's actually not his real name. Philo means love. Logos means the word. It's very possible that, that this guy was a lover of God's word to such, in such a, an extent that he was actually given uh, that nickname. And then he says in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This holy kiss was a physical way for the church to show what was happening internally. We love each other. We want to show that physically. And so they had this holy kiss that they would demonstrate uh, for one another. Every culture of Christians or generation of Christians has to decipher what is culturally appropriate when it comes to a physical way to greet each other in Christ. So it should be obvious to us that uh, the holy kiss is not our jam anymore. (laughs) And if that's not obvious to you, I'm trying to help you with that right now. You know, we might be a little more in our culture into handshakes or, you know, the bro hug or something, but it's a way for us to say, look, you're special to me because you, like me, are in Christ Jesus. The thing that I want you to see here about the Roman church is that they were a very diverse church, but they were unified. They were diverse, of course, racially. You had Jew and Gentile, and there in Rome, you'd have people who had come from every walk of life gathered together in Rome. So they were very diverse racially. They were also diverse socially in the sense that you had people who were wealthy, people who were poor. You had Roman officials. You had people who no one would even know their name. They were common slaves all together in the same church. But specifically here in Romans 16, a beautiful thing for us to recognize is the gender diversity in the body of Christ. Paul mentions of the 26 people, probably nine of them are female. And I say probably nine because two of the names could go either way, being male or female. So at least seven, but potentially up to nine of the 26 are female. Of four of them, it's interesting, Paul says, They worked hard in the Lord. He makes a comment about their diligent work uh, for Jesus Christ. Now, this might be surprising to some of you uh, because we so often know Paul as the one who made clear the ongoing gender roles even in the body of Christ. He was the one who would tell us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that the way it was in the Garden of Eden— Uh, with Adam as 
the leader in his marriage, uh, the way it was in the nation of Israel with male spiritual leadership in the priesthood and in the prophetic offices and in the kingly offices, uh, the way it was in the Gospels where Jesus, when he made his selection, he decided to choose 12 male disciples to follow after him, even though he had other female followers who were learning the word and helping serve with him. The way it was in the book of Acts, where you read of a predominantly male spiritual leadership in the apostolic group, but also in the pastoral role in the various churches. Paul was the one who, when people would have asked the question, but now that Jesus has come, aren't we all just one in Christ and those gender distinctions are over with? Paul was the one who over and over again in 1 Corinthians and uh, here in Romans and 1 Timothy chapter 2 declared to us, no, those gender roles and distinctions still exist. Not because one gender is better than another, but in the same way that Christ was uh, under his father, and with no difference, they're equal, but there's a difference in roles. That's the same way that it works in the body of Christ. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 to 14. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That's his commentary, his command as an apostle for the church, for the body of Christ. Uh, he says she's to remain quiet. There was probably some kind of Uh, disputing uh, type of thing happening in the church there in Ephesus. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul gives a reason that is not cultural, but a reason that is always true in every culture. Adam formed first, then Eve. And probably what he's alluding to is when Eve took leadership in the marital role, uh, that's when disaster ensued. Because, not because she was you know, had a lesser mind or anything, but because that wasn't her rightful place. God had asked her, God had asked Adam to be in that leadership role within his family. So because of all of that, which, you know, did I really need to get into that? I'm kind of getting myself in the hot water with some people right now. But uh, I'm just saying with that as our backdrop, isn't it surprising that here's Paul as he's writing to these Christians in Rome He's just listing off woman after woman after woman that he greatly appreciates their work in the Lord. From Phoebe on down the list, he is mentioning woman after woman who has been wonderfully used by Jesus Christ in the the work of the Lord. And um, I think that any Christian who is honest can look around and see the incredible impact that that females have made on the body of Christ throughout the generations. I cannot imagine how slow and how dysfunctional our church would be if all of the women who used their spiritual gifts to serve the Lord in this church just ceased to operate. I think in one sense, men have looked around over the years and have been perhaps provoked to service of the Lord themselves by the faithfulness of so many of their sisters in Christ Jesus. And maybe that was happening in the church in Rome, and that should happen in our church as well. Because when you see women who are faithfully serving the Lord, the men should look at that and say, man, I want to get myself in gear as well. And I think sometimes there's something about the male mindset where we focus very easily on our own kingdom, but sometimes don't as easily focus on the kingdom of God. And it's beautiful to see women who are serving the Lord, faithful in the kingdom of 
God. So just something beautiful that, to see there uh, in the diversity uh, that's found in the church in Rome. Okay, now in verse 17, there's a word of warning that Paul gives to the Roman church before he signs off. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul gives this word of warning. We don't know if there was something specific that Paul knew about that was happening in the church in Rome that he wanted to give this warning about, or if it was just a general warning that Paul is giving to this Christian church. But we have to receive it as a general warning because we don't know the background Uh, to this warning if it did have to do with something specific. But Paul tells them, stay away from. He uses the word avoid those who cause divisions and create obstacles there within uh, the church. And inside of this paragraph, he gives us three great filters with which to ask the question, should I receive this teaching or not? Should I receive this movement or not? The first one is found in verse 17. He says, they're doing things or teaching things that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. The first question that we can ask from this little grid is, does this thing that's being taught, promoted, said, does it agree with Scripture? Does it agree with Scripture? That's the first question that needs to be asked when an idea or a concept is floated in the name of Jesus. Does this agree with Scripture? And that sounds you know, very elementary to us, like, of course, yeah, that's what we should do. But so often, that is not the question that is asked. So often, the question that is asked is, do I get a positive vibe from this thing that is being said? Do I have a strong emotional connection with what is happening right now? But the first question is, does what is being said agree with Scripture? The second question that can be asked comes from verse 18, because these people weren't serving Jesus, but their own appetites. And so a second question could be, does this thing that's being taught or said, does it glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? Or does it glorify the lordship of Jesus Christ? There are obviously many things that uh, can even have the Bible in them, but man, Jesus and the cross of Christ must be in them as well. I was talking to a friend of mine who, after a couple of years studying here, he's a military man. Uh, he was leaving with his family, and he was just taking the time to say, hey, you know, thanks for the church and the fellowship. And uh, he just made the comment to me. He said, you know, when I go to a new town, because we're on the move more frequently than lots of people, he said, you know, when I go to a new town and I visit various churches to try to find our new fellowship that we're going to be a part of, he said, I give a church two weeks to inside of their sermon, talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. 
He said, you know, if the first week they don't do it, maybe it's a guest speaker, maybe just kind of time went on, they, didn't, they forgot to mention Jesus and the cross and what he'd done. But after two weeks, if two weeks go by, he says, I'm out of there, man. He says, because the cross is so important. It is central, obviously, to us and our Christian faith. And so when you hear a message, when you hear something being promoted and produced, is Jesus there? Is his cross mentioned? Is is it glorifying of the Lord? And then a final question, a third question we could ask, comes from verse 19. Because Paul talks about the Roman church and says, your obedience is known to everyone And then he says, I want you to be wise about good things and innocent about evil things. In other words, I want you to be experienced in doing good, and I want you to be a novice, like a total beginner in the things that are evil. That's a great exhortation to us as Christians. But here, a great question, or a third question would be, does this teaching promote morality and goodness in the Christian life? Or does it bring me down into license and edginess and gray area kind of stuff? Or or is godliness being produced? So the three questions, does it agree with Scripture? Does it glorify the Lord Christ? And does it promote goodness in the lives of those who would hear the message? Now in verse 20, Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That might stand out as an interesting phrase. The God of peace crushing Satan under our feet. Have you ever thought of that, about that? The God of peace. Oh, he's just so peaceful. Just so wonderful. Just so. What's he going to do with all that peace? He's going to crush Satan under his feet. That's what he's going to do. He has reserved and created the lake of fire for Satan and his followers. His demons. And they'll be cast there eternally. This, of course, reminds us of the promise of Genesis 3.15, the, the, the first mention of the gospel. Now, in verse 21, Paul has greetings, not to people, but from people who are with him in Corinth. Uh, Timothy is the first one mentioned. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And we know a ton about Timothy, but I'm not going to get into his life at this point. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. And then he says, verse 22, I, Tertius, or Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. What that means is that Tertius had been Paul's uh, scribe writing down uh, the different things that Paul was speaking. So Paul was orally delivering the book of Romans, and Tertius was operating as his stenographer. And he gets to take one verse to put his little name in there. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, verse 23, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, so again, another official, and our brother Quartus, uh, greet you. So I've tried really hard in looking at all these names not to get into you know speculation about who they are and stuff like that, but I can't resist with this last one, Cordis, uh, because I read this one scholar, F.F. Bruce is his name, and he wonders if Cordis is actually the younger brother of Paul's stenographer, 
Tertius, because Tertius means the third, and Quartus means the fourth. And so what that would mean about their parents is just awesome to me, so I couldn't resist. You know, you're number one, you're number two, you're number three, you're number four, you know, so... I just like that speculative thought about Quartus. I hope that wasn't the case for the poor guy. Now, here we have our final word of praise, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed And through the prophetic writings, the Old Testament has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This gospel had become so a part of Paul that he calls it my gospel. And the thought I want to leave you with today is a statement of verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. He's talking about God who takes the gospel message and we've just studied it in the book of Romans. So in one sense, you could say that God takes a weapon, the book of Romans, and he uses it to strengthen us as his people. And now, as we've looked at Romans, and I told you at the beginning of our study of Romans that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have the story of what Jesus did on the cross. Gethsemane, his betrayal, the denial of the disciples, his arrest, his beatings, his crucifixion, dying on the cross for six hours, his giving up his spirit to death and to the Father, his being buried, his being raised from the grave and the appearances, That's the record of what Jesus did. But the book of Romans is the story of what was being accomplished as Jesus did those things on the cross. That he was providing a way for righteousness to come into our lives apart from the work of the the law. For forgiveness to come into our lives. For reconciliation with God to come into our lives. When I started out this study, I talked about my daughters and building one of those connects roller coasters with them and all of these pieces all put together all laying out on the floor and then the manual and you put it together piece by piece until this cool toy is built paul has taken every piece of the gospel message and he has built it for us so that now we have something that god is able to in our lives strengthen us verse 24 with And so my heart and my prayer is that we would, not just because of this year, but for the rest of our lives as Christians, that we would allow God to take the book of Romans and strengthen us with those words. Because so often, what we need to hear is right there in the greatest letter that's ever been written. Amen? Lord, we thank you so much for your great kindness towards us, your great grace, Lord, toward us. It is amazing, Lord, to be able to hold this book in our hands, to study it, to think about it. And even today, Lord, just a thousand different things to think about and to look at in this one short little chapter of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that you would take 
those little nuggets, those little treasures, Lord, that you'd bury them into our hearts. And Father, the joy and love that was found in the Roman church, we pray, Lord, that it'd be found here in this church, in this fellowship as well. We thank you, Lord, and we just look to you for your grace, Lord, to explode in our hearts, Lord. Take these verses from the book of Romans and embed them into our hearts and into our minds that thoughts that we have that are contrary to it would be defeated because of it. And Lord, that we'd be more and more conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. So we thank you, Lord.